Good morning. Happy New Year. Should I say 2010 or 2010? Still deciding. I think I'm going to go with 2010. If you have your Bibles with you, join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. As Paul is writing this letter, he is aware that he's under siege at Corinth. After he left, false teachers had come in, Judaizers had come in and convinced some of the Christians that Paul was not the real thing. And so some of those Christians were talking about Paul and they were saying he's not a genuine apostle because he wasn't one of the twelve. And he's not a genuine preacher because he has gone beyond the law of Moses. And he's not a genuine leader because he's not assertive enough. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians to really defend himself against these accusations. But in the process, he develops a theme, which is a great theme for us. And the theme is, this this is what authentic Christianity looks like. And throughout this book, he tells us, here it is defined, here it is described, here it is depicted. He defines it in passages like chapter 5, where we find out that the definition of authentic Christianity is a radical change. So radical that you become a new creature in Christ. He describes it in passages such as the first two chapters that we've already looked at, where he tells us, in the midst of difficult circumstances, authentic Christianity shines. In fact, authentic Christianity welcomes things like suffering, welcomes tough things like discipline in the body of Christ, because I have a new perspective on what God is doing in those situations. And then thirdly, he depicts it in passages where he talks about his own life. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is one of those. In chapter 2, verse 12, through chapter 3, verse 3, Paul is going to illustrate authentic Christianity. He's going to say, here's my life, and it's the real thing. And in these verses, we're going to find four unmistakable marks of authentic Christianity. And those four marks are unquenchable optimism, unforgettable impression, unimpeachable integrity, and undeniable reality. Even makes me smile. First, we're going to look at unquenchable optimism, but before we do, let me just say this. These four characteristics, these four marks are interesting because they can't be manufactured. You can't produce these yourself. These are only produced by the Spirit of God. And for that same reason, they can't be imitated. Somebody can fake them for a while, but they can't really fake them because they they can't be duplicated. They can't be copied. And thirdly, they're not limited to one time. They are just as real today in the 21st century as they were in the first century. So they're not simply limited to Paul's life. They are true of everyone who has authentic Christianity. So on this first Sunday of 2010, 
Let's look at these four characteristics, these four marks, and evaluate ourselves. Take a little inventory and see if we have authentic Christianity as Paul depicted it in the first century. First mark is unquenchable optimism. Look at verse 12. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Now, Paul has been talking a lot about his plans. He originally planned to come straight over to Corinth from Ephesus. Instead, he tells us he went north to Troas, and God opened a huge door for ministry there, but he says, I was restless in my spirit. And so I moved on northwest to Macedonia. Now, why was he restless in his spirit? He was restless in his spirit, he says, because he didn't see Titus. Now, Titus, you have to understand, had left Paul and gone to Corinth. So Paul knew when he saw Titus, he was going to find out how they were doing in Corinth. He was going to get a report on how they had responded to the first letter and how they had responded to his admonitions to them. Have you ever been there before? You're waiting for a report on somebody you care about. You're waiting to find out how they're doing. That's the setting in which Paul finds himself right here. And notice what he says in verse 14. But thanks be to God. Now, the end of this story isn't going to happen until chapter 7 and verse 5. And that's where he's going to tell us that he ran into Titus and he found out the end of the story. Right here... He's saying, I was restless, restless in spirit. I didn't know how the story was going to end. But what is his response? He says, thanks be to God. In the midst of his concern, in the midst of his restlessness, he bursts out in an expression of unquenchable optimism. Thank you, God. Now, most of us say, thank God. There are three ways you can thank God. It's always easier after the trial. You ever notice that? You've gone through it. You've come out of it. It's over with. You look back and kind of see what God was doing, and you say, say, thank God that's over with. It's more difficult before a trial. When you just see it arising on the horizon, and you know that's a trial, and it's coming right at me, it's tougher to say, Thank God in that situation. But the most difficult place to say thank you is right in the middle of the trial when it's painful and it hurts and you can't even necessarily see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's dark and it's dreary and it's difficult and you look up and you say, thank you, God, for this trial. You see, that is the expression of genuine faith. And that's where Paul finds himself at this point in time. He doesn't know the outcome. He's in the middle of the trial. He's waiting for Titus. Titus hasn't come. He says, thank God in this situation. Now, how can he thank God in this situation? Well, look at verse 14 again. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph 
in Christ. Now, if you haven't underlined that phrase, I would suggest that you do so. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, I want to... I want you to focus on this phrase. I want you to look at this phrase carefully. I want you to notice what this phrase does not say. It doesn't say, uh, God makes all my plans work out. Paul had a lot of plans that didn't work out. And Paul is not saying that he rose to the top in every situation and was vindicated in every situation. If you look at Paul's life, he spent most of the time at the bottom. Later in this same book, in chapter 11, he's going to catalog his experiences, and he's going to say, I've been in prison more times than I can count. I have been beaten five times by the Jews. Three times I've been beaten with rods. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked three times. I spent a whole night and day in the deep. He's not talking about victory from the world's perspective. He's not saying that everything in my life was hunky-dory. He's not saying that if I believe God, everything's going to be great, I'm going to prosper, and everything's going to bless. Blessings are just going to drop all over me all of the time, and everybody's going to say, stand back, he's blessed. When people looked at his life, they said, he's down and out. The guy keeps losing. He keeps getting thrown in prison. He keeps getting beaten. Stay away from this guy. He's certainly not blessed. But if you look carefully, you see it's not Paul's plans that are in view here. It's God's plans. He leads us in triumph. You see, it's not really our triumph. It's his triumph. He's the king. He's the military commander. We are following him. When we get in line with his plans, the victory is his. And how does he get the victory? Look at the phrase again. In Christ. Now let me ask you this. When was Christ's most triumphant moment? Don't say it out loud. You might be wrong. His most triumphant moment was his resurrection, right? So if if God leads us in his triumph, what he's saying is he wants to manifest Christ's resurrection power in your life. Now let me ask you another question. What must precede a resurrection? I'll help you. Death. If you're going to experience God's triumph in your life, that triumph being Christ's resurrection power, guess what? You have to die to yourself. That's the paradox of authentic Christianity. I get victory through surrender. 
I get life through death. When I go to the bottom, God exalts me to the top. That's authentic Christianity. To experience resurrection, I have to first experience death. That's why in Philippians 3.10, Paul says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. And most of us stop right there with that verse. Say, amen. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What's the rest of the verse say? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I have to be conformed to his death in order to know the power of his resurrection. And that's where most Christians balk because we don't want to die to ourselves. We love the resurrection. We don't like the cross. I have to first go to the cross with Christ if I'm going to experience the power of his resurrection in my life. That's God's triumph in me. And again, that's the paradoxical principle that lies at the very heart of authentic Christianity. God operates best in cemeteries. And if you're very much alive in yourself, you're not going to experience his resurrection power. And so what looks like defeat from man's perspective, God has a way of coming into that and bringing his victory in that situation. The world looked at Paul and said, this guy is a loser. Everything that happens to him is negative. But he was being thankful to God because God's victory was being manifest in his life. Let me show you an example of that. Look over at Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians begins with a P. Philippians 1.12. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My circumstances... What were his circumstances? Well, he's writing from prison in Rome. He's chained day by day to one of the members of the imperial guard. He is scheduled to appear before Nero, the emperor, facing possible death. He can't travel around the empire like he used to. He can't preach. He can't visit the churches that he planted. You might think that he would look at his circumstances and be discouraged. And yet the interesting thing about the book of Philippians is it's the most confident, joy-filled book that Paul writes. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says that familiar verse, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. Under these circumstances, how does Paul rejoice? How does he display confidence? How do we see that resurrection power emanating out of his life? 
and why? Well, he gives us two reasons here. The first is in verse 13. He says, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Paul's in prison. He says, my imprisonment, but not my, just my imprisonment, my imprisonment for Christ is known throughout the whole praetorian guard, the whole imperial guard. You see, what we see here is that God had appointed Nero to be the chairman of the evangelism committee for the Roman Empire. He didn't know it, but most emperors don't know what's going on in their empire. And they certainly don't know what God is doing in their empire. You remember when the Son of God was going to be born and Joseph and Mary were 90 miles north of where they were supposed to be in Bethlehem. And God said, i got to get them 90 miles down to Bethlehem. How am I going to do that? And he had the imperial Augustus make an imperial edict that everybody had to return to their hometown to pay their taxes. So he moved everybody in the entire empire to get them 90 miles down to Bethlehem. In this case, Nero says, I'm going to use my imperial guard and I'm going to have them be chained to Paul so I make sure this guy doesn't get away. So we don't know how often, maybe every six hours, a different guard comes in and gets chained to the Apostle Paul. Now, if you want to feel sorry for somebody, feel sorry for these guards. You know, they're, they're trying to live a quiet, pagan life. And they get chained to this guy for six hours. This, this crazy guy who keeps talking about this Jesus who has risen from the dead. And one by one, these guards get saved. You can call it a chain reaction. If you doubt this happened, look over in chapter 4 of Philippians and verse 22. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How did he get into Caesar's household? He's chained to Caesar's imperial guard. He influences them and goes all the way to the top. So here you have these young men destined to prominence politically and militarily in the empire, being infiltrated and conquered by this old man in chains awaiting trial. That's triumph. Second reason he gives is in verse 14 of chapter 1. He says, And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now this was the first official Roman persecution against the Christians that was taking place at this time. Many had become afraid to speak out in their faith because they knew it could cost them their lives. But when they looked at the Apostle Paul and how his imprisonment had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, it gave them confidence and boldness to speak out themselves. 
Someone has said that the best way to reach a community is to put all the preachers in jail. And then some other people would step up and say, you know what, I'm going to have to be bold and speak out for Christ. That's what happened in Paul's situation. And then let me give you a third reason. He doesn't list this one, but I, don't, I think it's because it wasn't apparent to him at the time. You know, if you ask the Apostle Paul what was his greatest contribution during his lifetime for Christ, he would probably say it was all the churches that he planted. But you know how many of those churches are still around today? None. A lot of the cities aren't even around today. What has lasted? His letters. And when did he write his letters? He wrote most of them when he was in prison and he couldn't do anything else. So God had him there in prison, so he couldn't preach, he couldn't do anything else. What did he do? He sat down and he wrote the scriptures, which we have today. God was working his triumph in that negative situation. God always leads us in his victory in Christ. Did you notice when? Always. That's unquenchable optimism. And that is a mark of authentic Christianity. So if you're measuring yourself this morning, what are your circumstances right now that you don't like? What are you struggling with that you're saying, I don't like my job or I don't like the fact that I don't have a job or I don't like whatever, I'm in a difficult situation. How is your situation difficult? What are your circumstances? Authentic Christianity is able to say, thank you, God, because I know it's not about me, it's about you. I know that no matter what my circumstances are, you can work your victory and your triumph through my life, even in these circumstances. That's mark number one. Mark number two is unforgettable impression. Notice the end of verse 14. <clears throat> and that, I'm sorry, I'm in Philippians. Hang on. Verse 14 at the end. And manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, for we are a fragrance of Christ. Certain aromas have unforgettable impressions. When, when this winter is over and uh, spring comes, especially when you start getting towards summertime, sometimes you come into the neighborhood, I come home from work, and I smell a barbecue grill. You know that smell? It's, it's, it's unforgettable. It's like suddenly you think about friends, relaxation, good food. It's all associated. That smell brings all those thoughts to bear. Maybe for you, the, the smell of your wife's perfume brings, because you're so cheap, she only gets to use it once in a while. And, and it brings these thoughts of special occasions to your mind. Maybe it's uh, bread baking or coffee brewing or bacon frying or 
popcorn popping or freshly cut grass, all of those smells have that unforgettable impression. Maybe it's in the summertime, it's rain on hot concrete. And the smell of that is very refreshing. Well, there's something about authentic Christianity when we encounter it that leaves an unforgettable impression. It's a fragrance. It's, a sm- it's something. We can't quite grasp it, but, but it's unforgettable when we see it because we're impacted by it. And what is the fragrance? He says in verse 14, it's the knowledge of him. And then he tells us who the him is in verse 15 when he says it's the fragrance of Christ. What is authentic Christianity? It's Christ in you. So in you and living out of you that that people see it and smell it and feel it coming out of your life. See, Christ is the aroma, it's not me. And that's why he says it is manifest through us. It's when we allow Christ to live through us that we have the fragrance of Christ in us. Now, we don't smell so good ourselves. Try walking around without Christ and people will be going. Remember, I once gave flowers to a girl and I wrote on the card, these flowers may lose their fragrance, but you will smell forever. Not, not very tactful, but accurate. Like the saying, old fishermen never die, they just smell like it. Our flesh stinks. In and of myself, apart from Christ, I stink. Christ is the fragrance. Christ is the sweet aroma. And where do we get to emit that aroma? He says at the end of verse 14, in every place. Every place. And who smells it? Look at verse 15. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Who smells it? Well, primarily it goes to God. It's an aroma that goes up to God. Did you know that God smells? In fact, if you, if you look at that theme in Scripture, it's rather interesting throughout Scripture, the, the, the aromas that go up to God and how much God is concerned about the smell of those aromas that come up to him. What's the thing that pleases God the most? When we come to know and love his son and let his life be manifest in us. That's a sweet aroma to God. So God smells it. Secondly, it's smelled among men. 
And the impact of authentic Christianity among men is one of two directions, either from death to death or from life to life. It either repels people or it attracts people. You know, somebody who's allergic to perfume is irritated by a sweet smell. I'm a little bit allergic to that. That's why I hate it. I hate to go into department stores because you walk in, all they have is perfume. The first, you know, 20 yards. I have to kind of run an end around to get into the store because I don't want to smell all that stuff. When you are authentic in your Christianity, the sweet aroma of Christ is coming out of your life. The fragrance of Christ is evident in you. And he says there's two responses by people. They will be repelled, driven further to death, or they will be attracted by the promise of life. I have no control over how people will respond to authentic Christianity. The only thing I can be certain of is that they will respond. If I have authentic Christianity, they will either be bitter or better. They will either be confronted with the reality of death and say, that's what I want, or they will be confronted with the reality of life and say, I want that. But one thing cannot happen. People will never remain the same. Your life will push them further toward death or draw them toward life in Christ which when you think about it means that everything you do in your life is a life or death situation. You ever think about that? Everywhere you go, you should be a fragrance for Christ, which means everybody who's responding is responding in an eternal life or eternal death situation. And I think that's why Paul says what he does at the end of verse 16. Who is adequate for these things? This is heavy stuff. Jesus certainly had this quality about him. No one ever came in contact with Christ and went away the same. And he is the fragrance inside of us. If we let him be manifest in us, people will respond because authentic Christianity leaves an unforgettable impression. Thirdly, an unpe- I can't even say it. An unimpeachable integrity. Verse 17. Notice the verse. For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We're not going to get done. So relax. Um, I'll do this verse and quit. How's that? Okay, I'll keep going. (laughs) By a vote of one. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for that encouragement. Authentic Christianity is evidenced by the way a person handles the Word of God. And he says, those who are false use the Word of God 
to attain their own selfish ends. He uses the phrase here, they're peddling the Word of God, which means they're using the Word of God as sort of a sales technique to get something that they want. And unfortunately, I see a lot of people today who fall into that category. They pick out a certain biblical principle and they use that principle for their own gain. Even the idea I mentioned earlier about prosperity, if you have enough faith, God will heap on you all kinds of riches and blessings and beyond your measure. Well, if I use that in the wrong way to feed somebody's ego and selfishness, then I'm peddling the Word of God. So you can tell whether somebody's authentic by how they use the Word of God, how they handle the Word of God. And he mentions four things here about authentic Christianity, four qualities. The first is with sincerity, with honesty, speaking from the heart, meaning what we say. The person who's authentic is sincere about it. I say what I believe and I believe what I say because I sense I, I, I want to live out the truth of God's word. That's sincerity. Second, he says, but as from God, and I think that talks about our purpose. The idea is I'm commissioned by God. It gives purpose to what I do. I'm not aimless. I have an end in view. I have a goal in mind. I have an objective. I am representing the God of this universe. Early in my ministry, somebody said to me, you know, every time you go up to preach, you are representing God. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that. But the reality is, in everything we do as a Christian, we are representing God. We are sent out by him. We are speaking for him. And then thirdly, he says, we speak in Christ. And I think that talks about our power and authority. Remember when Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 7, the crowds were amazed because it says, he spoke as one who had authority. When we get to chapter 5, we're going to find out that we are ambassadors for Christ. He sent us out to speak for him. We have his authority and his power as we go out. And then finally, he says, in the sight of God. And I think that's talking about transparency. We live in God's presence. The, The key to authentic Christianity is just live with the sense that God is watching everything you do and you'll be transparent. If you live your life in the sight of men, guess what? It's easy to create a facade and to do only those things that you know will impress them. But if you live your life in the light that God is watching, God sees all, then you will be honest and you will be sincere and you will be authentic. So those qualities add up to an unimpeachable integrity. When it comes to God's truth, I speak God's truth from the heart with purpose, with power, with openness. And that's one of the marks of authentic Christianity. And then let me just touch on the last one. I won't talk about it just a little bit. 
undeniable reality. And that's chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And we'll come back to this passage next week and talk about this because there's a lot of rich stuff in here. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying kind of sarcastically, do I need to come to you again and bring a letter of commendation saying that I'm authentic? You see, they did that in the first century because the churches sometimes didn't know people. If you look in Acts chapter 18, when Apollos came to Corinth, he had a letter from the church of Ephesus saying, this guy's for real, he's authentic, he's a Christ follower, he's a good preacher, let him, let him take your pulpit, you know. He had the letter of commendation. Paul planted the church in Corinth. So he's writing back to them and saying, are you saying I got to come back and bring a letter commending me and saying that I'm okay? How ridiculous is that? And then he says in verse 2, notice, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You want a letter? You're the letter. You see, the letter is the undeniable reality of a changed life. You want to test authentic Christianity? You're not just doing cosmetic changes in your own life and the life of other people. If you have authentic Christianity, you are radically changed so that you are a new creature and you are using the power of God's word in other people's lives. And guess what? They are being changed as well in such a way that you can say nothing else except that is God at work in that person's life. That's the letter. I don't need a letter written down. Just look at your life. You have been changed by the Spirit of God and by the power of his word. That's all you need to say. That's authentic. Christianity. So how'd you do today? Four marks of authentic Christianity. Unquenchable optimism. Victorious joy in the midst of any circumstance. Second is unforgettable impression. You smell like Jesus. And guess what? You usually get more smell out of something when you crush it. Crush a flower, you get more fragrance. Maybe that's why God crushes you sometimes to bring out more of the smell and aroma and fragrance of Christ. Third, unimpeachable integrity. You practice what you preach. You don't just say, I believe this book. You live by this book. And fourth is undeniable reality. You realize that I am the epistle of Dan. Put your name in there. God is writing his own letter, and it's your life. I trust that it will be a letter which will spell out the reality of Christ living through you and bringing his triumph through you. Let's pray today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this personal letter that really gives us insight into the life of Paul to realize the struggles that he dealt with, to realize that his life was not always hunky-dory, that he went through more difficult situations than we have seen, and he still triumphed in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a new perspective as we enter into this new year. 
to realize that you want to produce and manifest in our lives authentic Christianity. Lord, allow us to realize that the key to that is to die to me so that I can live to you. Father, I pray that we truly might be people who can say like John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. Lord, increase in our lives, live through our lives, manifest yourself through our lives and we will be careful to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name.